There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia swathed through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. It's the rate that's a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello and welcome to Climactic. My name is Mark Spencer, publisher of the Climactic Collective, a ragtag armada of independent climate-engaged podcasts. Now, you're listening to Climactic, of course, the flagship of that armada, and today we're bringing you an episode from one of the other shows on the network, and that show is PenPod. Now, this is not a show for fans of pens or calligraphy. This is not a review of the latest ballpoint. This is a podcast from a student group, specifically the Postgraduate Environment Network, which is the student group for environmental students at the University of Melbourne. How it came about was I was attending Climate Reality in Brisbane with some students from Penn who came back very excited after I'd been talking to them about podcasts nonstop for about three days. (laughs) Some of the members of the group were keen to give a podcast a try. And what happened next is something I'm quite proud of. Being a student group, we knew there was going to be turnover, and that at the end of every few semesters, the students who were leading the group were going to move on. They were going to go get jobs, they were going to leave the university and be sort of alumni rather than active day-to-day participants. And rather than the podcast then coming to an end and other students later on down the road having to pick it up from scratch and start over, we instead decided to try something which is that the show lives on the Climactic Collective, but it's available to be used by Penn. So essentially, when one group is done with it, they hand the keys back to us at Climactic, and then we hand them on to the next group of students when they're ready, on top of giving them any training, free hosting, free access to tools, basically be a bit of a support network for them. And here we are at episode 10 of PennPod, and it has just grown from strength to strength. I want to especially shout out Chris Dixon for getting this ball rolling, for doing some fantastic early interviews with current students, former students, interesting people from around environmentalism. And then I want to give an equally big shout out to Cameron Kaufman for taking it over from Chris when he was done. And Cameron as well has done such a great job with PenPod. This episode in particular, Cameron is interviewing the founder of Climate for Change and a couple other members of that group. Now, many of you will probably already know C4C. It's basically the Tupperware model applied to climate conversations. They host in-person, in-home chats about the climate crisis, basically giving a chance for a climate intervention in a non-offensive, non-threatening, non-scary way. Cameron's now involved in Climate for Change as a volunteer, and I understand we'll be moving on soon from Penn. So I look forward to meeting whoever is going to be handed the keys from Cameron, And I look forward to seeing where PenPod goes from here. But for now, enjoy this wonderful episode, now that they have reached the double digits mark. And I'll hand over now to Cameron Kaufman. Hi, I'm Cam, and welcome to the 10th episode of the Postgraduate Environment Network's podcast, PenPod. Today I'll be chatting with the founder, fundraising coordinator, and fellowship coordinator of Climate for Change, an organization that is very dear to my heart, that uses personal connections as a lever for climate action. Today we'll discuss Climate for Change and some opportunities to get involved, some insight into starting your own business, and some tips for employment for international students. I hope you enjoy, and make sure to follow our show, as well as to check out the many other amazing environmental podcasts in the Climate Podcast Collective, Climactic. Hi guys, thank you guys so much for coming and welcome to PenPod. So today I'll be chatting with the founder of Climate for Change, Katarina, and a few of the staffers, Marta and Serena. And I'd love just for starters if you guys could introduce yourselves. 
So I'm Katarina. Hi. Uh, I am the founder of Climate for Change, and this is the first time I can introduce myself as the former CEO. Um, I've just stepped aside um, as CEO after six years. Hi, I'm Marta. Hello, listeners. Um, I'm the fundraising and marketing manager at Climate for Change, and I've worked here and volunteered for just about three years now. Hi, I'm Serena and I'm the Fellowship Coordinator at Climate for Change. Cool. Thanks, guys, for the introductions. Serena, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about what the fellowship is. Awesome. Yeah, I can. Um, so every year, Climate for Change runs a fundraising and communications fellowship. So this is a four-month-long volunteer program uh, involving weekly training sessions. And within these sessions, participants learn essential skills for entering or being within the not-for-profit sector. Um, and they then, what's kind of unique about the fellowship is they then put these skills into immediate practice uh, as ambassadors in our annual peer-to-peer -peer campaign, fundraising campaign. And so headed up by our fellows, this campaign raises approximately half our organisational income every year. So it's a pretty monumental um, campaign and program. Um, and personally, I love that the fellowship um, creates that double benefit and double impact of both building the capacity um, of these passionate people that form part of the program and directly building Climate for Change's capacity to do our work. So I'll get a bit more of a <laughs> spiel. Um, so last year due to COVID, um, we piloted running the entire program online uh, and that was hugely successful. It was one of the best programs we've ever run. And so as a result, this year we've chosen to keep it online, which means we can accept more people. So we can accept 40 people. Um, and it also means we can actually um, open it up to national participants. So anyone across Australia um, can apply to be part of the program, um, which is great. Uh, so this year, uh, for our 2021 fellowship, applications open May 11, uh, and the program will start from July 7 through until early November with those weekly sessions. So yeah, I recommend that anyone at the start of their career or early in their career uh, who's wanting to work within the not-for-profit sector or volunteer within the not-for-profit sector, um, and anyone you know who wants to meaningfully contribute to the climate movement, I really recommend that they apply. I did the fellowship as well, and it was just an incredible experience, and I really think a springboard to the jobs that I have today in the environmental sector, and got a huge network out of it, and it was just a blast, and I had never fundraised before. That was a really great skill to, to get as well, and something I was a bit nervous about doing before, so yeah, I can't really recommend it enough, and part of the reason I wanted to have you guys on today if anybody has any questions about applying or more questions about the fellowship in general, feel free to reach out to me, Cam, and I can pass you on to Serena. And yeah, we'll go from there. So Marta, who works for Climate for Change, but also did the fellowship a few years ago. What were your reasons for doing the fellowship and what did you get out of it? Thanks, Cam. Great questions. My reasons for doing the fellowship were, that was quite a while ago, actually, 2018. So not that far back in, into the past, but um, I'm going to refresh my memory. The, the main reason was that I've moved to Australia in, in late 2017. I'm originally Polish. I've lived in the UK for a few years, um, then traveled a bit and met my partner in the meantime, who's from Brisbane and decided to move to Australia in late 2017. Yeah, I was living in Brisbane for a few months and I was looking for more opportunities to contribute to the climate movement in particular. I, I felt like personally, this was one of the biggest issues facing us currently and my generation and, you know, younger generations as well. So for a few years, I was getting to a point where I was realizing that I wanted to focus my time and energy on solving that issue. Ideally, for my professional skills, I studied public relations and advertising, but didn't really want to work in that industry. So I was hoping I would find a way to use those skills, but for good and 
towards contributing positively to the climate movement. So when I arrived in Australia, I was looking for ways to contribute to the movement. And I've started volunteering with a few organizations in Brisbane. I went to a few protests, some meetings. I was pretty much getting my hands on anything I could. But yeah, I felt like even though there was so many passionate people around me, I just felt like I was just seeing the same the same people at every single thing I went to. Um, you know, there was just this core group of activists who were just doing everything they could to put climate action on the agenda. But somehow that was around in November, 2017, November Queensland election. And somehow that election went well, but it just didn't feel like we were having as much impact as we could have. It just didn't feel like enough people were speaking up and doing something. So anyway, long story short, I was looking for other things that I could do within the movement. And then I was on ethical jobs. And so that Climate for Change was recruiting for the 2018 fellowship. And when I read about what they do on the website, I was like, wow, this sounds so incredible. This feels like the missing yeah, piece of the puzzle. This organization is actually mobilizing people who are concerned but are not active yet um, within the movement and are not doing enough. So I felt like this fellowship sounds like a great way um, for me to contribute. Um, and so, yeah, I applied for the 2018 Climate for Change Fellowship and it was an incredible, incredible experience, I think, because of the practical side of it and the, the fact that the fellowship program really lets you have as much impact as you want in terms of contributing to Climate for Change's work and the broader movement in general. So yeah, the practical part of it, which was the fundraising as part of the Climate for Change's main fundraising campaign, was just really empowering. I think at that time in my life, I was feeling a little bit unsure about what I wanted to do, unsure about my ability to make an impact and sort of yeah, and when, when you go out there and ask people to support you and the cause you're really passionate about, it really instills confidence in, in yourself, but also in, you know, the goodness of people around you and that they are there are some really great people um, out there in the world and in your network. And it's really reassuring to see that people are willing to step in and do their part when you're... Um, yeah, when you're speaking out about something that you're really passionate about. So that was something that I really, really gained from the 2018 fellowship. And yeah, I was really lucky to for that to sort of develop into a job after the fellowship has ended. Um, so Kat um, accepted me or I don't, I don't even know how to call it. Kat sort of um, brought me onto the team as the fundraising officer after the fellowship ended. And yeah, they just had a filling, uh, 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 what's the word, a slot, an empty slot for that position uh, after the fellowship ended. And yeah, I've been on Climate for Changes team ever since and have Loved every minute of it. Sometimes it can be really um, busy and there's a lot going on, but um, yeah, I love it. It's it's so rewarding to be able to work in a field that you really care about and seeing the impact that your work has. Um, and yeah, I highly recommend fundraising as a career to anyone. <laughs> Following on from that, so uh, Marta, like myself, we are both international students. It's kind of difficult, to put it mildly, to get employed in this field. So I was wondering if you just could give any tips for the international students out there about, yeah, how, how to get a job, really, in, in this highly competitive space. Yeah, 100%. I, yeah, I remember being really overwhelmed after coming to Australia, I came on a working holiday visa and I knew that I wanted to do something meaningful, but because of the number of opportunities and also, yeah, my visa, visa situation, I didn't see how I could actually, yeah, start working in, in the field or even in the nonprofit sector in general. Um, and 
I, yeah, obviously had to <laughs> earn a living. So I kept doing what I was doing for a few years before coming to Australia. So found some jobs in hosp in hospitality sector, um, was, yeah, serving tables for a good, well, not, not, not a year, not, almost a year since coming to Australia. But in the meantime, so I've already graduated, so I kind of had a lot of time to work, but yeah, I, I couldn't find meaningful job opportunities for someone on a working holiday visa. So my solution to that was find any shitty job I could and then sort of spend my time to do, to get yeah, to volunteer with organizations that I was really passionate about and wanted to um, be part of. And Actually, it wasn't really a structured plan for me to get employment through that, but it sort of happened this way that it worked out for me. And then in the meantime, I was able to get a permanent visa. So that was really helpful as well. But I think my number one learning from this and advice as well is for any international students or people who have just moved to Australia from abroad would be to try and find one or two organizations that you really resonate with, you really feel passionate about, but also potentially organizations that one day you would love to work for, um, and then try and find opportunities to volunteer with that organization, or at least with an organization that's within working in a similar space. Or, you know, if you're really passionate about climate change, then obviously trying to um, volunteer with some environmental or climate organizations. Um, because yeah, even looking at it from the perspective of working at Climate for Change and recruiting both volunteers and staff members. First of all, if someone's already volunteered at all, and then also on top of that volunteered in the environmental or climate sector, yeah, just a huge benefit for you and it it will definitely help you stand out in the recruitment process because because it showcases that you are passionate and knowledgeable about the sector so if you're you know competing against people who have a lot of experience but have never for example volunteered in a climate organization then even if you don't have that much experience sometimes passion is more important than um, actual, uh, you know, professional experience, um, because a lot about working in the nonprofit sector is about um, also the cultural fit and trusting that the person you hire um, or fill the position with will give it its their hundred and ten percent and. Yeah, volunteering is one of the best ways to showcase that passion and that commitment to something that you you care about. But also understanding that, you know, volunteering is hard because it's unpaid. So it is a thing that not everyone can do. So in that situation, it could be pretty tricky, especially if you're studying and working in hospitality or, you know, sales or whatever it is, just to um, be able to get by. Um, but even in that case, if you can find something that you just really spend a couple of hours a week to, to do, even if it's just simple, like, you know, filling out envelopes for, for an organization you really are passionate about, that's already, um, yeah, a good step in, in the direction of getting um, the job that you want in the nonprofit sector. Yeah, no, that helps a lot. And I would, yeah, I totally agree. And, and something I would just add is, and kind of exactly what you're saying, it's really worth putting yourself out there. I had a similar story to Marta's. I came here on a working holiday. I was working in hospitality. I really wanted to work in the environmental sector, but I didn't know how to break in. So I just started volunteering everywhere I had time and capacity to do. Um, that's the reason I'm connected with Climate for Change. I think I was on your mailing list and translated something into Portuguese. And then when the fellowship went 
online, you guys reached out to me to apply. And then, you know, I was volunteering for another organization that connected me with the job that I'm in today. So it just kind of is about putting yourself out there, doing everything that you're capable of that interests you. And then when it comes to the time to hire someone, you'll be top of mind in that person's network or in, within their organization. So it's just kind of, yeah, good to get get your face around and, and put your hand up to do things and show that you're passionate and willing to put in the work. Um, so yeah, thanks for that. No worries. And not to, not to toot our own horn, the fellowship that both you and I have done, Cam, it's actually one of the easiest volunteer programs in that the time commitment is not huge and you can do it around full-time work. And some people have done it um, with a weekly session in the evenings and then you do personal fundraising on top of that. But I feel, yeah, honestly, like looking at the ways that volunteering works in the sector, I, yeah, obviously I'm a little bit biased because I am a climate for change and I've done it myself, but I really would highly recommend if anyone is thinking about breaking into the climate sector or nonprofit sector in general, including fundraising or marketing work or comms work, um, I think opportunities like the Climate for Change Fellowship are really great ways to learn, but also have something really great to put on your CV and use the skills that you learn to apply for, for jobs as well. Are there any other opportunities to be involved with C4C besides the fellowship that you could just briefly speak to? Yes, definitely. We always have quite a few active volunteers at any given time. But they, they vary. One of the ongoing uh, volunteer opportunity is facilitating climate conversations, which is our flagship program. So that's the yeah, volunteering activity that's always <laughs> up for grabs if anyone's really interested. And I think from what I know, it's a super rewarding way to volunteer and it's pretty flexible as well. Um, and yeah, it's it's great for meeting new people and being in, in yeah in the space with people who care about similar things as you. Um, so if anyone's interested, there's info on our website, or I can also direct you in the right direction. Or if if you reach out to Cam and then um, she connects connects us. Uh, but outside of that, we also have some ad hoc or um, yeah, other volunteer opportunities um, which come up on um, yeah, every now and again. So if anyone's interested in hearing about those, we have a fortnightly volunteer newsletter, which you can just sign up to on our website as well. And every second week, we sort of list um, any of the upcoming volunteer opportunities that we have at the moment. And we also have a skill register so once you when you're signing up to get that volunteer newsletter um there's a very short form which asks you about your any particular skills that you have um, or would like to contribute so then we put people onto a volunteer skill register so if we're looking for any particular skills um or roles that need particular skills then we reach out to people um using the contact details and, you know, the info they've shared with us through that register as well. Cool. Um, so after some minor internet issues, we are back and on the air. Um, Kat, I was wondering if you could just, in your words, give us an intro to what Climate for Change is for those listeners who haven't yet heard about it. Yeah, great. So our mission is to create this social climate in Australia for the action that we need on climate change. So basically what that means is that in order to fix this problem, we need some pretty massive changes that will require our governments to enact. And in order for them, A, to want to do that, but even if they wanted to, B, <laughs> to be able to do that, they really need the support and um, the demand from the public. I think we've seen time and time again, either governments try and enact something and then it get torn down again, or governments that won't enact those. And in both situations, we really need the Australian public actively demanding the strong action that we need and supporting it when it comes in. So that's really what we're trying to achieve. And 
Our work is based on social research that tells us that in order to really shift people's minds and hearts and actions, you know, some people will do that just through reading an article or watching a movie, but most people do that when they process information and the way that most people process information is through two-way dialogue, um, particularly with people that they know and trust. So our work is all about facilitating those two-way dialogues. We basically support people who do get the issue, understand what needs to happen and are already acting to, we support them to then go out and have better conversations with the people that know and trust them to get them on board too. And the main way that we've been doing that is through our climate conversation program, which has really uh, stolen the Tupperware party model. I'm sure all your listeners are way too young to have been to a Tupperware party yet, Basically, the way that that works is that a host invites their friends over to their house, a trained facilitator comes over and facilitates a structured conversation um, that's really designed to take people through the whole intellectual and emotional journey they need to go through to get on board with this issue. Um, And then at the end of the conversation, we ask people to do a number of things. So one is to sign up to take action with us and and then they'll get um, sort of regular actions that they can take. But then the other really important ones are to sign up to host the next conversation. So that's really key in order to be able to keep going more deeply into different communities and reaching more people. Um, And then we also invite people who are really keen to facilitate so they basically come on board as a volunteer and train to facilitate those conversations with us. Um, and then, yeah, we also ask for a small donation to help us cover our costs. Um, and that's how it works. Yeah, this is something that really um, struck me about Climate for Change when I was deciding to do the fellowship was this model. I, I did find that I've been going to all these protests and um, environmental events. And um, I think a lot of people who work at C4C have some of the same frustrations about the environmental sector. You see the same people over and over again at these events. People who care already care. Um, And something about this model that's different, it's people are going to come and have a conversation with you about climate change because they care about you, because they're your friend. And then in that conversation, they become someone who cares. So you're really activating this sort of really large, necessary group that has been like minimally reached out to by environmental movements in the past. And it's a really powerful model in that sense. So Kat, when did you start Climate for Change and why did you, like what pushed you over the edge to the point where you're like, I need to go for it and do this myself? Oh, yeah. I mean, there were many moments. And um, like you said, I mean, I was also feeling frustrated um, going to lots of events, um, lots of meetings and always seeing the same people and, you know, realizing that the environmental sector was doing some really great work given how small they were, and I guess still are, but they were even smaller back then, Um, you know, they were really punching above their weight. But I could see that it just felt like we were constantly putting out spot fires rather than moving forward because we just weren't big enough. And, you know, I could see around me that a lot of my friends and networks were people who, you know, they cared about this issue. Like if you gave them a survey and said, you know, is climate change important? Should we be doing more? Should we do more even at significant cost? They would have said yes, yes, yes. But they weren't really doing anything about it. And often I'd have conversations with people who would say that and then they then we'd talk about actions that the government could take and they'd say, oh, I'm not sure about that and I'm not sure about that. And particularly this was at the time when the carbon tax was being brought in or sort of in the lead up to that. And it was just so frustrating to have these conversations with people who theoretically cared. They definitely knew that we had a problem, we had to do something about it, but they just weren't prepared to do anything that would actually mean that we got the action that we needed. They weren't necessarily willing to support that carbon tax. And even if they were, they weren't necessarily voting at election time in a way that would encourage stronger action and they certainly weren't reaching out to other people and growing the movement and I felt like if I could just sit down with them and have a chat and really a proper chat like one where we'd made the time and the space and we engaged really respectfully and productively I was sure that they'd come around but I just didn't have 
the means to do that. And I, I actually looked for organisations that would help me do that and there was just nothing around, um, you know, really the the best support I could get to have conversations was to sign up to like do door knocking or street stalls. And, and that wasn't really the type of conversation I wanted to have with people. Um, so I guess I just decided to try and set it up myself. <laughs> yeah. And that's one of the reasons I was really excited about having you on the show. I feel like Kat's story is a really great example of seeing you know, a niche and a gap that needs to be filled in this really important space and just doing it yourself if you don't see, you know, other people around you doing it. And I feel like a lot of us feel like we're not qualified enough or or adequate or not going to be able to do it. We might not have the skills, but Kat's story is so relatable. And the only difference is that she took the leap and here she is years later with this amazing organization that's grown so much that she's actually um, been able to walk away from it and confident that it'll sustain and, and thrive. So yeah, I'd love to get more sort of nitty gritty from you on once you decided to go for it, you knew that there was this need, you had an idea, how did you actually go about starting it? What did that process look like? That's a really good question. I mean, I, I guess I do know, but I still sort of, you know, six years on sort of look back and think, gosh, how did this all happen? <laughs> um, but I do think, you know, part of, part of it, um, I'll give, you know, I will talk through some of the, the more, um, I guess, just logistical stuff of, of what I did. But I think a key part of it is, um, you know, when you really commit authentically to something and you put yourself out there on the line and you I guess lead by example by having that sort of I guess moral courage to act on what you believe in and you are willing to be vulnerable in that respect and just be really open and authentic I think people are attracted to that and want most people want to do something and you know, if you give them half an opportunity where they can see something that they can do then and they believe in you and they can see your example then they will come around and you once you build a community yeah now I sort of look at it and yeah I've stepped away now but you know I could step away because there are just so many people who can probably do a better job than I can in a lot of respects anyway and I I really do think that that just comes from actually just jumping in and giving your heart and soul to something and being really authentic and honest and trying to keep your ego out of it as much as possible Mm -hmm. Um, and that will bring people to you. So that that's a very high level, broad <laughs> um, learning. But in terms of just like what I did practically, so I started meeting with some friends and we were meeting fairly regularly and it just wasn't really going anywhere because we were all working and had other things happening in our lives. And so I guess the first thing I did was actually quit my job, which was obviously not something that everyone can do. <laughs> I was really fortunate to be able to do that. And yeah, that meant that I could dedicate the time to the work that I was doing. But even then, I quickly realised that I couldn't do it on my own. um, And I really needed some people who could commit some considerable time. And one of the things I did first was just to recruit a board of people around me um, and sort of set up the governance side of stuff, which is, is very boring. But a couple of those board members were really helpful in getting things set up and one of them in particular who happens to now be one of the new CEOs so that's really cool she took me aside and she said you're not going to get anywhere unless you can raise some funds like if you want to make change you're going to need money like even if everything's you know climate for change is really volunteer powered most of our actual work is done by volunteers but volunteers need support they need resources and there are certain things that need to happen really regularly consistently and in order to have a really good volunteer program you need staff so she said you've got to raise funds to employ people and so that's actually you know that was our first crowdfunder and our first sort of mini fellowship I guess we didn't call it a fellowship back then but um, we had five volunteers that we sort of recruited and gave them just I think they had like three or four sessions so not a four months worth of training at all and we ran a little crowdfunder that raised I think $28,000 and with that we were able to hire our first staff member for six months part-time and he and I really worked on actually just getting the conversation um, content written 
and doing practice ones and really refining it and getting it going. And then it was a matter of, I guess, constantly fundraising to try and, you know, keep that role going and bring on more staff that could support growing volunteers. But at the same time, yeah, really building the volunteer community as well and and really just working to build community. But, you know, I think in hindsight, if I were to start an organisation again, (laughs) please don't let me do that anytime soon. I need a break. Um, But I probably would spend a bit more time really recruiting the right, like people around me who have experience in that space and who have networks and could really maybe mentor me and connect me to places where I could get some more substantial funding early on. But I mean, that's to start a new organisation. I, I would say to listeners, lots of us have lots of ideas or things we want to do that don't require a whole organisation. You know, even if like it might be just a small project in your local community or something at university or, you know, you can pitch it to another organisation. So I think there are lots of ways you can do it without sort of needing to start a whole organisation. And I, I just think... Many of us overthink things or find reasons not to do things and the climate crisis just can't afford us to do that anymore. I think if you see a way that you can make a change and no one else is doing it, just jump in. (laughs) Yeah. Well said. You're actually (laughs) making me think maybe I should follow up on some sort of ideas that I have about making a difference in in the sector. So thank you. Very inspirational. But yeah, so Kat is now (laughs) moving on to the next thing after Climate for Change. We're really excited for her and going to ask her a bit about what her next step is. But before I do that, I just am wondering if you could speak a little bit to why you've chosen that now is a good time to leave and what about Climate for Change at this moment in time makes you comfortable taking that next step? Yeah, great. So there are lots of reasons why I decided to step aside. One, I mean, one is after six years, um, it was pretty heavy going, a lot of work and I have two young children, or they're not so young anymore, and I really wanted to make sure I spent more time with them before they grew up and left home, I mean, the reason that I started Climate for Change and I've worked so hard is really for their future, but I also really want to make sure that I'm a present parent as well. So I guess that was the personal reason for stepping aside. But, you know, thinking about the organisation as well, I felt it was the right time for the organisation. And there were a number of reasons for that. Personally, I realised that I started the organisation because I had an idea And I felt I knew how to do that. But as the organization grew, I fell more into the CEO role, which is more about fundraising and stakeholder um, engagement and strategy and engaging the board and much less hands-on. And I actually felt that I'm probably much more of a hands-on person. I'm much better on the ground engaging volunteers. And I could certainly do all the things in the CEO role, or at least I learned how to do them on the job. Um, And I lent into that as it came up. But as I looked ahead to the next six years, at a personal level, I just thought I would be happier doing the things that I really, you know, the on the ground work rather than the higher level leadership work. I also realised that Climate for Change is, is clearly at a turning point. We've really laid our foundations and now we've we're really moving from that startup phase to a more established organisation that requires a whole set of new skills that I don't necessarily have all of them. And again, I could lean into them, but I felt it was a good time to bring on someone who might have more of those skills. And actually talking to Jane and Lena, who are our new co-CEOs, you know, we were chatting and I was sort of saying that to them and they said, well, we feel really confident at this point taking the organisation forward, but we could never have actually set up a new organisation. So I think, you know, it's important to realise that different people and different personalities are better at different stages of the organisation. So that was one of the reasons. And secondly, I guess, you know, after six years, I think it was just time for fresh energy, fresh ideas, people who could bring a new perspective to the work that we do. Yeah, I just think, you know, six years is a really good time for renewal. Um, And the organisation was at a strong point. Um, Thanks to you, Cameron, and all your colleagues in the last fellowship, we did a really great um, crowdfunder. We were set up fairly well financially, and that felt like a good time to recruit and hand over to new CEOs, knowing that, you know, during that period, things are going to take a bit longer. So it just felt like 
a good time in our existence to hand over to someone new. So this is, yeah, probably a good segue into my question about you C4C recently published an impact report on the successes of the org and future outlook and that sort of thing. And can you just speak a little bit to the results of the impact report and talk about where C4C is today? Yeah, sure. I never seem to remember all the numbers off the top of my head, so I'll, I'll talk more broadly and I can share some of those. Um, and also the impact report is on our website which is climateforchange.org.au. Yes, so people can always delve into that more deeply if they'd like to. But so, yeah, some of the the high-level numbers, the conversation program, I think at the time it was about 8,000 people that it had reached when we did that impact report. It's now over 10,000. And I think the, the most exciting thing for me, well, I mean, even those numbers are actually really impressive for a face-to-face engagement program, particularly one that is um, as grassroots and as minimally funded as ours. So to give you some perspective on that, the sort of most popular way of engaging people face-to-face in the climate movement and other movements is through door knocking or phone banking or street stalls. And when you compare our data to that coming from um, phone banking and door knocking and street stalls, one volunteer per session will reach two to three times the number of people per volunteer per session at door knocking, phone banking or street stalls. So the reach itself is two to three times higher. Also, those campaigns tend to really be short term. They tend so people will do door knocking or phone banking for a short campaign, maybe maximum a few months around something. Whereas our conversation program has been ongoing. So I don't actually know of another program that has reached so many people so deeply and so consistently over a long period of time. So that's pretty impressive in and of itself. And certainly when we looked at, you know, what what were the limits on our growth and our reach? It really just came down to resourcing. It wasn't limits on what the model was capable of. Um, so if we had um, more resourcing, which really comes down to more money to be able to employ more staff to support more volunteers, um, then you know that reach is really unlimited, I guess. And then the other thing that was really exciting for me was, and the thing we really didn't know until we did this report was who we had reached. So our goal at each conversation is really to have a group of people in the room that cover sort of three target audiences that we've defined based on their attitude and their action to climate. So we want about a third of the people in the room to be people who are already on board and committed and taking some sort of action, but maybe not regular ongoing action. Um, because they're going to be the people who will put their hands up to host and facilitate and be more active. So we want them in the room. And then the next group of people we want are people who are really already on board theoretically and probably, you know, supporting the action that we need on climate change, but are not taking any action at all. So, and by action, I guess, you know, they're probably doing things like recycling and taking their keep cups and, you know, sort of personal individual actions, but not sort of social change actions, not things that are going to shift the bigger system. So they're the people I guess we want to get active. And then we're also looking for about a third of people who would say that they're on board. They would, they're would those people who say, yes, climate change is important. We should be doing more, even at significant cost. But when you put forward something that could be done at a higher systemic level, they get cold feet and say, oh, I'm not sure about that. Or, you know, that, that maybe we should do something else. So we call them wavering. They're theoretically supportive, but they're not prepared to actually support things when they're put forward. And, you know, the goal is to reach those people and then to shift them along the spectrum. We're not really interested in reaching people who are deniers or really anti-climate action. We don't need them on board to get the action we need. And, you know, they're just much harder to reach and engage and, and shift. Um and yeah, the impact report showed that we're almost exactly, a, you know, a third of each, each, each of those groups makes up a third of the audience. So that was really exciting. And um, even more exciting was that almost 50% of people shift categories after coming to a conversation and way more than that, like 80% or so um, are more active and shift their attitudes somewhat 
during the conversation um, and also go on to have conversations with other people about the issue. And that's really important because a recent study out of the US showed that the one consistent fact, they looked at all sorts of things that might determine your um, your voting pattern and your willingness to vote on climate. Um, and the only thing that was consistent across the board was whether or not you were likely to have conversations about climate change in your networks. So the more we can be getting people to talk about this issue, the more we can shift the dial on this issue um, socially and politically. Yeah, there was lots more that came out of the report, but <laughs> those, were the, those were the ones that really excited me the most. Yeah, that it was actually so heartening to see that report and to sort of learn more about the the social sciences behind that and how that that's actually like a true phenomenon and really the only thing that they need to kick into gear is to connect with somebody about it really validates the important work that C4C is doing. So, yeah, now that you've accomplished all this and that C4C is in such a great place. Really curious to know what your next step is. Mm, yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> um, so I definitely want to stay connected with C4C um, and, you know, I'll probably come back and volunteer. I'd actually, you know, I've been thinking, it's funny how much I've been thinking about facilitating again. So in the early stages of Climate for Change, I was actually a volunteer facilitator as well as the CEO and pretty much everything. <laughs> and then as we got bigger and busier and my role as CEO increased, I, it was just too hard for me to keep facilitating. Um, but I really miss that. Um, and I would love to keep doing that. Um, so I'll probably come back to that in a little while. Um, but I'll give myself a break and also just let the new CEOs, I guess, settle in and you know, establish their relationships with everyone before I, I jump in there. But that that's definitely on my mind. And then I guess career-wise, I did apply for a few jobs went before I left just because I guess I was getting nervous that, oh, goodness, I've just quit my job during a pandemic and a recession. <laughs> Will I get another job? But actually then I, I got interviews for those and just realised that I wasn't ready to commit to something long-term yet. Yeah, I need a bit more flexibility and time with my kids. But luckily, since then, I've had lots of offers to do just project work. You know, some things are small as just going to, um, like speaking at a conference or facilitating at a conference, and then some bigger long-term work as well. So yeah, I've so far said yes to one organisation that wants me to do some training for their staff and volunteers, and another small community group that's just started up called Voices of Goldstein. So anyone listening in the Bayside suburbs from Elstonwick through to Beaumaris can join that group. And that is, they're part of the, there's a movement around the country that was inspired by Voices for Indi, which was a small community group that ended up actually um, getting an independent Kath McGowan elected. Voices of Goldstein hasn't decided if that's what they want to do yet, but they want to really engage people more in the democratic process, try and reclaim democracy for the people rather than politicians, I guess, and try and have, you know, have people's voices heard and listened to and respected and sort of try and bring back some of the, I guess, core values that most people hold into our democracy. So that's a fun project. I'm um, working with them a few days a week just to get them set up, help them sort of build their volunteer base and set up all their systems. And um, yeah, they're doing little kitchen table conversations. So helping them, training them in how to run those and stuff like that. So yeah, that's just for a few, that's a, for a few months and, and then we'll see. That's awesome. Yeah, it seems like such a great sort of next step. It's really in line with uh, Climate for Change because yeah, something that you encounter uh, in environmental studies is that you can do all these individual actions, but actually there's a lot of things that can't be changed on a, on a top-down level unless you start being active in civil society. And that's kind of what Climate for Change is trying to spur is to get people yeah, from that recycling step to I'm going to go to a protest or write a letter to my MP step. And I just feel like Voices for Goldstein sounds like such a natural next thing for you and I'm really happy for you that's yeah, awesome thank you it's really aligned with C4C 
And you've kind of touched on this and, and something else I really admire about you, Kat, is your ability to realize that you need to do things for yourself. So whether it's start an organization or step away from an organization and spend more time with your family. And, you know, when you work and live and breathe climate change, sometimes dealing with that, talking to people about it, dealing with climate anxiety, dealing with life in general can get really stressful. And I wonder if you have any tips for our listeners about how to manage climate anxiety while still making an impact and still making sure that you're living a fulfilling, happy, healthy life. Um, Yeah, so if you have any tips sort of managing all this for our listeners, I'd love to hear them. Because yeah, again, I just feel like you're such a great example of yeah, taking time for yourself and, and, and knowing what's right for yourself. Thank you. I'm sure I'm not really the best example in that I think the last six years I've, I've worked way too many hours and, and not taken that time for myself. So part of me stepping away was so that I could do that. And I guess it is hard when you're a founder of something. Like even though, like I've noticed just even sort of doing this little bit of work that I'm doing now, um, I'm working really hard and passionately, but it's just a different level when you're not the founder and you don't feel that sole responsibility for everyone involved. Um, but I, I guess what I have learned over time, there's a few things I would say. Um, so in terms of climate anxiety and grief, um, and this is backed up definitely by a lot of research as well, I think the two things that really help you cope with that are doing something about it, getting active and being amongst others who are doing something and feel the same way that you do. So taking action and taking collective action is really key. Finding your community um, that you want to act with and, you know, doing things with them. A, it's going to help fix the problem (laughs) and B, it's going to help fix your climate anxiety and grief as well. And there's countless um, sort of reports and and, um, research into that that's all found the same thing. In terms of sort of finding that balance between action and looking after yourself, I think that's a really hard thing to do and we all get better and worse at it. I, I, I think personally I found sometimes what's been most stressful is actually being stressed about being stressed. <laughs> And I actually did read some an article once that that was one of the key causes of stress is that we're also stressed about being stressed that that's actually harder to deal with than the stress itself. Um, so sometimes just like actually allowing yourself to, you know, if you find that you're doing lots of work, like obviously you can't keep doing that consistently all the time, but not always berating yourself for 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 that as well is important. But yeah, I think in terms of you know, finding that balance. One of the things I've done recently is been really careful about news and when I tune in and out of climate news and even political news. Obviously, to keep doing this work, you do need to keep on top of the latest science and the latest in politics, and you do need to step into that. But um, having rules about when you do and when you don't, I think, is really important for your mental health. So personally, I don't listen to anything after 6pm. Um, and these days with all the catch up radio and TV and stuff, if there's something on in the evenings, I can always just find a time later on to watch that or listen to that. And then, yeah, just really good calendar management, like just putting everything in your diary and actually blocking out. Like I, at the beginning of the year, I actually block out a date night every month with my husband and a family day with my family once a month. And, you know, I actually sit down and think about, you know, blocking out times that are times for me or times for my family or times for my friends um, and actually putting them in in my diary before my diary fills up with other stuff. And then I can actually see when someone asks me to do something or I've got something due, then I can just communicate with them and say, look, I'm sorry, I can't do that by that date because I've got other things on. Would this date work or if they come back and say no we really need it by that time then I can go back to someone else and say well um, I've got to get something else done can we push this other thing back or I can say to them what's my prior what's your priority here what do you want me to work on so 
good organisation and good communication, I think, are just the key really to any job, um, but particularly um, when things build up, really thinking ahead and, you know, don't just assume you can get everything done, like actually put it in your calendar and and map it out. And that includes things like if you've got somewhere to go to, put the travel time in there, put the prep time in there. If you've got a meeting and you know you're going to have to action things after it, allow time in your diary to action that. Like it, It's been the one biggest lesson I reckon I've learned over the last few years and it really helps. It means that I can actually allocate time where I, I just tune out and I relax and I'm not anxious because I know everything else is mapped out in my calendar as well. Awesome. Thanks for those tips. Those are really valuable. And I love the idea of blocking out a date night every month. I might take you up on that one. So yeah, cool. Um, And just to close out, we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but the the community that you've built, Kat, is so special. And I just kind of wanted to hear you talk a bit about the people involved um, and the community you've created Wow. (laughs) It's by far and away the best um, community I've ever been part of. Um, I don't think I even, I mean, community's always been something that's really important to me. I think when I first realized the power of community, both in terms of the impact it can have on the world and the way it just empowers me and everybody involved in it, um, you know, I think the first time I really realised that was when I um, settled in the community that I live in now and I got involved in some of the local groups here. And, I, you know, from that moment, I just knew that community was one of the most important things to me. Um, but, yeah, the C4C community has really just shown me that, you know, in its extreme form. Um, and, and what is it about that? I think it's, you know, it's what, it's one of those ephemeral things that's so hard to pinpoint, but I think coming together with people who just, I, I don't think I've ever really seen much ego in there. I think people really just are coming together to make a difference, um, and support one another in whatever way they can, um, and that and and somehow when that happens it's just amazing how when you need something or when something gets needs to be done the right person just happens to appear at the right time um i've really noticed that a lot lately um and also just the other magic of it has been when i've noticed you know working in climate is tough um and it can be really um emotionally grueling and all of us involved in the community have had better and worse times um moments where we felt strong and able to make a difference and other moments where we felt really overwhelmed and what I love about the community is that it just seems to um sort of magically you know when people can't do as much or they don't feel as strong others are always able to step into that space and pick up anything that others might not be able to do, but also support them um, and get them back to where they need to be. Um, and I've just, you know, it's, I don't really know how to describe it, but this it's like this magical force that just sort of seems to create what you need when you build a strong community of people who are aligned in their values and just truly committed to making a difference um, and supporting one another. Yeah, it's really been such a privilege to to be a part of and I highly recommend anybody who's looking to get some volunteer experience network in the climate space to, you know, sign up for the fortnightly newsletter, see what what opportunities are out there within the organization or even apply to the fellowship because again, it's such a great group to be a part of and who's actually really making a positive difference. So, yeah. So on that note, probably just going to wrap up. Um, I was wondering if you have any parting words you'd like to share with our listeners. If not, that's fine. We can just say bye. (laughs) I'd just echo what you said, Cam. Highly recommend. The Fellowship, I think, is one of my favorite um, volunteer programs of all time. I love 
being part of it. It's going to be the hardest thing for me not being a core part of it this year, but um, I'm certainly going to put my hand up to fundraise and hopefully I'll get a chance to meet all the fellows this year. It's, um, yeah, every year it's really um, awesome to watch the new group of people come together and see them connect with each other and form lifelong friendships, but also to just realise their own individual and collective power through both the training and then the fundraiser. It's amazing. I don't think, you know, no one expects fundraising to be as fun or empowering. Um, but, yeah, when when you do it, particularly part of a, as part of a group, yeah, it's, one of, it's been one of the most exciting things to watch people really grow through that process and discover. Yeah, discover their friends and family as well. You get to to understand things about them that you've never experienced before through having those conversations that you need to have in order to ask them to donate. So, yeah, I definitely recommend that. Yeah, agreed. Cool. Well, I think those are all my questions for today. I have to thank you again for taking the time to chat in this busy transition phase that you're in. I really appreciate it. And, yeah, I know our listeners... We'll find your insight invaluable and your tips for starting your own business or for starting your own project, as well as any opportunities within C4C, this wonderful community and organization that you've created. So yeah, again, thank you guys so much. And I look forward to seeing what's next for C4C and for you with Voices of Goldstein and any other projects you have, Kat. So thanks again. Thank you, Cam. Thanks so much, Cam. It was so lovely to see you again. And yeah, hope we see you again soon. The Climactic Collective.